Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you missed any of my talk radio breakfast show, don't worry. We've put some of the punchiest bits of this morning's show into a bite-sized podcast. The Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. Enjoy. Online, on DAB and on the talk radio app. Talk Radio. Uh, well, let's talk to someone now about uh, whether or not well, they should have been the hardest hit or not, because all of these effects of the pandemic and the lockdown has hit so many of us so hard. Well, let's talk to Ivor Cummins. He's a biochemical engineer in Dublin and a lockdown sceptic and one of these sort of, I suppose, leading uh, uh, people arguing against the lockdown rules, uh, which we've been seeing over the recent months and uh, producing some extraordinary videos on YouTube. And I was looking at some of the facts and figures, which, well, we often don't see placed in the context, perhaps, we need to know to make our own assessment about what the government is doing. Uh, good morning to you, Iva Cummins. Uh, good morning, Julia. Good morning. Right. Well, look. Let's talk first of all about these uh, Christmas uh, rules. Now, this is Christmas freedom. This is, uh, you know, Santa Boris letting us spend time with our families. Of course, we all know actually a lot of this is about the fact that a lot of people were going to spend time with their families, whether the government liked it or not. Uh, we are going to see up to three households being able to meet indoors touching each other, hugging each other over five days between the 23rd and the 27th of December. Um, we're told there will be, there will be, I suppose, punishment for this. There will have maybe, well, certainly tighter restrictions from the 28th onwards because there will be a spike as a result of this. Do you think that is going to be the case? Is it the right decision to allow people to meet up over Christmas? Yeah, well, sounds like you got a bunch of bad Santas over there, to be honest. <laughs> uh, so basically, the science has shown the critical measure of all-cause mortality and excess mortality, that lockdown. We now have 22 papers I put on my website, published analyses that show the lockdown doesn't really impact uh, mortality. And that's the key metric. And your hospitals are pretty much normal for respiratory season. So that one as well is not particularly notable. So I'd say that all of this is an enormous overreaction by the science. Uh, I'd suggest that uh, given that the epidemic ended back in May, June, uh, in reality, and we're now in an endemic kind of seasonal resurgence that's not particularly notable, then if you apply the WHO 2019 pandemic guidelines, right, big document, uh, that would be overkill probably because we're not in an epidemic but those would allow all Christmas festivities um, and they're quite these are, clear. These are published guidelines published in 2019. Yeah. I've seen those. You've, you, you've shared those online and verified they are, they are absolutely true, where they simply do not recommend a lockdown other than as an absolute last resort, which a lot of people, and certainly I did, support uh, back in March and March and April when we really didn't know what was going on. But certainly that is not something the WHO has been advising in recent months to Western governments to do. 
Uh, no, and, that, and that's the problem. The published guidelines were entirely based on decades of science until they suddenly changed their mind in February, for whatever reason. And they're quite clear, no quarantine of exposed individuals even, not recommended to quarantine exposed individuals. They don't even mention about locking down and all these kinds of rules. They didn't even cover that because it would have been too absurd to contemplate in late 2019. So things have changed, but I'd go back to the real science well, that we spent decades building. And, to be this, quite is, honest. and this is it. There, there have been, you know, long term advice based on previous pandemics about what we should do, what we should not do. Now, when you said a few moments ago, the epidemic ended in May and June, there'll be a lot of people shouting. There'll be complaints to Ofcom about uh, people saying that. What basis do you say that when yesterday we recorded, um, well, 535 new deaths in England, uh, uh, another 353 added from previous previous weeks. Um, how how can we say we, we are not in an epidemic when we've got hundreds of people dying every day? Well, because it's a matter of scale. So the epidemic is clear from the mortality curves, a huge hump back in March, April. And by around May, it had come right down to relatively normal levels. Now, what we see now is an all-cause mortality that's slightly above the average for the last five years. But even January in some years can be way higher than we are now. So that's called the confidence interval. So this is within the envelope of normal respiratory season. And if you're within the envelope of normal respiratory season, you can't call for extreme measures with no extreme situation and, and this is the thing we so are above we, we are above excess mortality for this time of year in terms of Slightly. we're looking at the five year average and these are they've told those are covid deaths although um, again lots of people have been arguing actually uh, the excess deaths are, are what's happening in the home from people not getting treated for other diseases rather than from covid but the latest office for national statistics figures yesterday said that wasn't the case i had a quick look at those and their registration deaths when I look at them, and they're not corrected back to date of occurrence of death. So there is a slight increase. It has to be corrected back to when the death occurred. That's the first thing. The second thing is there's a drop or a negative in non-COVID death. So you have to correct for misattribution, right? And then you have to look at the scale of this uh, little bump in the context of previous uh, November, December, January monthly uh, figures. And if you put that together, if a statistician a year ago looked at these figures and was asked, is there a problem? Should we do anything? He'd scratch his head or she'd scratch her head and say, what do you mean? They wouldn't understand. And this is the so thing. these Some, figures... Yeah, something can be above and five-year average, but not actually be statistically significant. We know 2019, we had um, very much a below average death rate, which is one of the reasons why we believe we've lost so many of our elderly people uh, back in the spring who, who perhaps would normally have very tragically, sadly died uh, earlier in the year. 2018, however, was a very tough year. We, we saw a big spike in deaths, but I yeah, don't recall a lockdown in 2018 team because that was flu year 2000 if you look at the the long-term graphs year 2000 was was desperate absolutely desperate was it 40 45,000 excess deaths in total over that winter again I was a political editor at the time I don't believe we ever even wrote about it well that's because we did the ethical thing and we stuck to proven science and established guidelines and the guidelines at the time would have said you know if you're symptomatic stay at home uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
and you get pretty much a similar result. So uh, people have to understand in 2020, whatever about the severity of SARS-CoV-2, and it's unfortunate and it's the virus's fault that people have sadly passed. But what's crucial is to remember, there's over 20 analyses now, and it's quite clear, even though intuitively you think if you lock down and you hide, that something gets better. But mortality doesn't really change. So the whole thing is based on, on a fundamentally broken premise that came in in February, March 2020. And people have to ask, why did everything change then? And what was the scientific basis for it? But people and aren't asking that. People are... The polling polls show that people are very supportive. In fact, they, when they disagree with the government on these measures, uh, whether it's tiered measures or whether it's lockdowns, they disagree, saying it should have happened sooner, it should last longer, the restrictions should be stronger. I see people all the time saying to me, oh, I don't like this lockdown, it's rubbish. And I say, well, I agree, I wouldn't want that. And they say, no, no, it's not strict enough. I keep seeing people out and about. They're on the trains, they're on their... their they're, you know, they're out spreading the disease. Um, the vast majority of people don't agree with you and me. The vast majority of people um, agree closer to the government. They think that we should be in lockdown all of this time uh, and that that would be would save lives. And, and the argument would be you, you know, either me, Julia, you, know, we, you just don't care about older people. If you cared about older people dying, then you'd lock, you'd be in favour of lockdown measures. I'd turn that around completely and I'd say I'd be correct. I would say to those people that those people are putting older people at risk because we have published analyses now that show that lockdown, if it does flatten the curve somewhat, it will result in more COVID-19 deaths. And we know now that it will result in enormously more non-COVID deaths over the long term. So I would say the people who are virtue signaling, the irony is they should put a mirror up in front of their face because they are the ones that will drive more death and suffering. And that's established in the science and even from the ONS report, up to 200,000 excess uh, deaths relating to lockdown. And we know now from the science that lockdown didn't really save much. So that's a huge amount of excess debt that they're cheerleading on. That's Did, just a fact. When we have, and there will be, of course, a, a full review into all of this, a public inquiry. Um, do you think you'll be on the right side of history? Uh, I would say so, but then I've always gone by the science and data. So like Professor Levitt and Dr. John Lee and Carol Hennigan and all of them, Gupta from Oxford and the Stanford and Harvard professors in the Barrington Declaration. The reality is there's thousands of top people in this who say this. And I would say yes, without question, they'll be on the right side of history. Online on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, Talk Radio. Let's talk about something we definitely do need to talk about. Uh, that is the spending review. Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has got a very, very tough day ahead uh, when he's actually going to be looking at what we're going to be seeing in terms of forecasts, uh, in terms of government borrowing, close to $400 billion this year, and uh, public spending at 60% of GDP, unprecedented in peacetime. We are at World War II levels. Is it going to be that V-shaped recovery? And how is it going to come about? Well, let's talk to Lord Digby Jones. He's former Director General of the Confederation of British Industry and joins us now. Good morning to you. Yes, good morning, Julia. Good morning. good morning, everybody. Digby, what do you want to hear from the Chancellor today? Um, I want an acknowledgement first on the, on the realities, on the stats, which is that, uh, yes, there is going to be, and indeed there has been, um, as you just said in your intro, Julia, one of the greatest uh, falls ever in peacetime, probably the greatest fall in economic activity and GDP, gross domestic product, if you like, the, the sales of the country. But the other part is also true, which is that we're heading into a V-shaped recovery. We're going to see unprecedented growth in 2021 and that we will be back more quickly than we think. And I know that it is um, uh, uh, the media's role always to put the inconvenient truths to people. I just hope that next year, and I have in mind a few newscasters in particular, actually do give some balance to this, which is it is absolutely right to say that the nation has headed into uh, Second World War levels of uh, lack of activity and lack of economic growth. But it's also heading towards better growth in any year since 1941 next year. And I just hope that the nation's morale, the belief, the self-belief is actually restored because of balance in media reporting in the next 12 months. Well, and indeed, and that's the thing. We did actually start off in a lot better place than many other countries. Very low unemployment, lots of, you know, lots of, OK, lots of lots of growth was stymied by the fact that we had all of that uh, uh, are we, aren't we over Brexit and people didn't want to make investment either externally or internally because they didn't know what on earth was going on. Uh, and that's the cause of a lot of those problems. Uh, but in terms of the actually underlying factors, things were looking really good. Well, now they aren't. We're looking at possibly 
visibly peak unemployment at 7.7 percent. Plenty of other countries would be delighted to get their unemployment down to those sort of levels. But the key thing is that it's going to be across the countries, particularly younger people. This um, uh, big package, we're told that it's going to be their £4.3 billion package to help people back into work, particularly £1.6 billion kickstart programme for a quarter of a million apprenticeships for young people. Do you think those, those are the sorts of measures that are going to be crucial? Or would you like the government to take a more sort of hands-off approach, low-tax approach, leave private industry to, to, to create those jobs themselves? I think if you look at the way that the private sector has been resilient, it's been innovative, it's kept going, it's produced the goods in amazing adversity. Um, I, I think that it can be the vehicle for getting especially young people back to work. Two areas. One is the whole hospitality leisure industry is, a, is an enormous entry level for, for young people. And um, it needs help. It will need a lot of help next year. And the other one, you mentioned it yourself just then, is apprenticeships. And anybody listening to this, anybody, you know somebody or you know a little business down the road. And if every self-employed little business in this country took on a kid at 16, 17, 18 in an apprenticeship, my God, it would give the local communities a bit of a fillip. And, you know, if the government can remove the excuse of I can't afford it by actually paying for it, then you not only put some late teenage years into work, but the other thing you do, of course, is you give them spending power, which means that they go out to the community and spend it. And you give a kid a skill for life. You give yeah. them a ticket. So and we, and we know it's absolutely crucial. Those first few years coming out of school or coming college or university, if you don't get a job then we are looking at some really, really poor outcomes. It's absolutely vital, isn't it? Let's also talk about uh, issues like public sector pay freeze. Um, there's some extraordinary graph uh, doing the rounds uh, showing just, you know, public sector pay carry on going up uh, throughout the pandemic at a slow growth, uh, but private sector pay just absolutely plummeting almost vertically straight down and really not coming any way back to recovering right now. Lots of people still on furlough and the like and all those job losses to come. Um, is this about fairness, sharing out the pain, public sector pay? Pay freeze for at least a year? Well, I just thought making a contribution would be a good uh, description because if you look at frontline public sector, nurses, doctors, uh, and, and carers, I'd, I'd add to that, by the way, policemen and firefighters and the army and whatever. Um, it's they're excluded and quite right. Well, no, not all of them. Only, only, I know, only the NHS frontline workers. Yeah, yeah. No, sorry, I would add the others. Why? Why are firefighters know. need to be included? What, 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 what extra work well, have they had this been, year? Yeah, but, but they're on the front line. Frontline of what? I'm trying to make a distinction between people who have made a contribution and those who have not. And the private sector has made the most enormous contribution in so many ways. And by the way, I don't mean the, I don't I don't mean the big fat cat ones you see in the headlines. I mean millions, millions of private sector employees who, as you just said, have had have paid a price somehow. Back office public sector, of which there are millions, have not made a single contribution other than possibly working at home. They haven't actually made any other contribution. Their pensions are safe. Their pay is safe. They've had a pay rise. And just for one year, for one year, if they then we're not looking for them to take a cut. We're just looking for them not to have a pay rise at all. Well, the the reaction of the Labour Party to this and the trade unions in the last few days, anybody would think that that, that we were uh, that the government was saying, can you please cut pay and get them to be redundant? And I, I just asked them, look, just for a year, just make a contribution to the country's recovery. 
Yeah, I mean, indeed, the Labour Party are calling it a kick in the teeth. And I think, goodness me, if that was a kick in the teeth, then we've had a, basically a full-on annihilation uh, and beating and, and, mur- and mass murder of the private sector, haven't we? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, let's talk about tax rises. Um, £50 billion, pounds, we're told, roughly, is the sort of amount that's going to eventually be needed to balance spending because of all that extra wartime spending. We've been told, though, by the government that that's not coming soon. It's certainly not going to be announced today. But, you know, they're going to try and sort of grow the economy out of this. There's lots of borrowing that's going to go ahead. Are you, are you someone who thinks that actually tax rises shouldn't be the route out of this or do you think they're inevitable? Well, obviously, the real long term route out of this is increased economic activity, more profits for the public, private sector, which means more tax and more jobs. And then those people in work pay tax. And then that pays for a public sector that pays tax. So the real route out of this is get the economy moving quickly. But it would be very wrong if we do ask people to wait for their pay rises, if we do expect everybody just to do it by getting economic activity. And I think not only for symbolism, but also for actually short term economic contribution, there are going to have to be some tax rises in the in the budget in March. I think capital gains is an area where you will see it. I think you should see probably ending of pension relief in the higher rates at the top end of the earnings scale. Things where the bulk of earners in the country won't feel that pain and will get out there and get working and spending, but where, yes, richer people should pay a bit more. And I, and I, by the way, by a bit, I don't mean, Mr Sunak, that it means a lot. I just mean <laughs> a bit. But, it, but a bit that would probably do a bit in the short term, show that we're all in this, aren't we? And at the same time, it's at an area of the economy where for a little while um, they can make a contribution too. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. If you are just tuning in in the last 45 minutes, we've heard the very sad breaking news uh, that uh, Meghan at the Duchess of Sussex uh, has uh, written about losing her second child to miscarriage uh, back in July over the summer. She's written a really actually very beautiful, heart-wrenching piece for the New York Times uh, in America about uh, losing uh, what she's, you know, her second child and saying how she felt a sharp cramp one morning in July as she was changing her son Archie's nappy. I dropped to the floor, she wrote, with him in my arms, humming a lullaby to keep us both calm. The cheerful tune, a stark contrast to my sense that something was not right. I knew as I clutched my firstborn child that I was losing my second. She's also talked later in the article about carrying an un- almost unbearable uh, grief uh, from the miscarriage. Um, well, this is a, a, an article headline, The Losses We Share. Um, let's talk about this now with Zoe Clark Coates. She's founder and chief executive of the Mariposa Trust and co-chair of the National Pregnancy Loss Review. And Zoe, you and I have spoken many times. We both lost a, a a number of pregnancies, you in really some very, very, very dire circumstances. Um, it's very brave, isn't it, of Meghan to speak out about this. And and also, you know, regardless of people's views on the royals, and I've been a big critic of her and being publicity mad and all of the like. But, you know, as women who've gone through this, as she now has, um, very understandable, the, the urge to talk about it, to share that grief publicly. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what's so powerful is that she's written this piece herself. So it's actually in her words. And I think that just makes it even more powerful, really, in the fact that she's been able to open up her heart and edit it and explain the fact that it's not just her loss, it's her and Harry's loss. Yeah. That's just been so eloquently put in this piece. Absolutely crucial, isn't it? And I think you and I both had um, similar experiences in terms of losing our first pregnancies and not realising until that 
that point quite how many women and couples, because as you say, it happens to the dads as well as the mums, do lose their babies. It's sort of one in one in six pregnancies uh, uh, that I know, but it's thought it may even be higher uh, in terms of pregnancies that people don't realise, people just don't realise they're already uh, being pregnant. Um, and it is incredibly, incredibly common. And yet it is something until only, I think, the last few years, people didn't talk about. Often it's a pregnancy lost in the first few months. Um, and so you haven't told people you're pregnant in the first place. So you can't then say, oh, I've lost a baby you didn't even know about. And and people are, are, are keeping that grief to themselves. And we know we know how hard that can be. Yeah, so true. It's very hard to tell people that you've lost a baby if you've never told them that that baby existed. And it often becomes this hidden grief and this hidden pain. And um, the one thing that grief needs is to be expressed. It needs to be understood and it needs compassion. And I think that's what a lot of people who go through baby loss don't get because it's often so silent and so private. And um, what I hope Um, Megan has done through this article is encourage people to speak and encourage people to share that even though this is common and um, and heartbreaking it doesn't mean it shouldn't be discussed and it doesn't mean that it doesn't deserve compassion and empathy yeah and also we 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 also know an awful lot of women blame themselves they worry it's something they've eaten something they've done uh, something Mm -hmm. they've not done that could be the cause when in fact all the research uh, and you know and and you're very much involved uh, in, in 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 trying to sort of make sure more research is done into the yeah. causes it's it's you know 99 percent of the time it's it's nothing anyone's done or not done that's so true it isn't anything anybody's done but because of this lack of control of the situation and there's nothing you could do i think it's natural for people to start thinking is it something i've done and if they do blame themselves does that mean they can prevent a further loss down the line so it's this natural cycle that starts but it's so unhelpful um, to you as a person and individually and emotionally to blame yourself but completely understandable that so many women do and that again just propels people not to talk about it because it's really hard um, to express um, this sort of level of pain. It's not something we're taught. It's not something we're educated on, is it? We're taught to put a fake smile on and to pretend everything's okay. So how do we then go out into the world and say we're actually heartbroken? Well, indeed. And uh, you and I will also be very familiar with uh, people doing their best to say the right thing to comfort you. And please, uh, everybody, this whole, oh, well, at least you've got one healthy child or never mind, you can get pregnant again. That that really isn't comforting. That's no more comforting than someone losing their mum and being told, don't worry, you've still got your dad. That's just not how grief works, is it? It's not. There's no, um, at least with empathy and compassion, at least you can get pregnant, at least you can have another one. Um, We've got to stop ourselves, I think, as human, trying to find a silver lining and try to rescue people from pain and thinking, well, if I say this, it's a bit of a positive twist on it. We have to know the fact that there's no opportunity to do that when you're comforting somebody who is hurting and grieving. You've got to allow them to sit in that pain and sit alongside them without trying to throw a cliche to make them feel better because all that does is encourages more pain. Absolutely. Just say, I'm sorry. That'll do. Yeah. And I've got the tissues. Can I sit with you? Can I sit and stare at the wall with you? There's nothing more you can do than show up and, and hold their hand. That's all people need. Online, on DAB and on the Talk Radio app. Talk Radio. 
Thanks for listening to the Julia Hartley Brewer Daily. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and give me a good review. And don't forget to catch me on the Talk Radio Breakfast Show every weekday from 6.30 until 10. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.